Coming to you live from my studio in Los Angeles, once again with no studio audience, it's part two of the patron show. You've got questions, he's got answers, even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the daily podcast this week where I answer questions from my patrons on Patreon about science, faith, and life and whatever they want to talk about. If you'd like to be a part of my patrons and be able to ask questions when I do shows like these, you can go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Patreon icon and uh, that'll get you there. So what do you say? Let's do a show and get it started. So continuing from yesterday's episode number 133, we're just going to pick up where we left off. I am answering questions on this program like it's a live show, which means I'm not researching them ahead of time. Also, Greg Nordeen, the producer of Ask Science Mike, has the week off against his will. Believe me, he would love to make this show sound better, but uh, I'd rather him take some time off to be with his family, even though he's in Canada and doesn't celebrate American Thanksgiving. Anyway, let's do a question. Leah Cheek asks, if NASA let you choose where to send our next uncrewed spacecraft, which object <laughs> which object in our solar system would you most like us to explore? Uh, I'm totally torn between Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter that's icy, and we think based on... Um, Tidal energy from orbiting Jupiter has more liquid water than the Earth beneath its icy exterior and therefore is a, a serious candidate to harbor life in our solar system. Or Titan, uh, one of Saturn's moons that's remarkably Earth-like, um, including having uh, lakes and rivers and precipitation, only of hydrocarbons because Titan is incredibly cold. <laughs> So uh, I've heard some uh, astronomers say that on Titan, ice is like lava because it's so hot compared to the rest of the planet. So you can have ice eruptions on Titan. Uh, given the fact that Jupiter is closer and probably a little bit uh, better candidate, at least with Europa for harboring life, I would choose to send our next probe there with the caveat that um, the thick, thick uh, ice sheet uh, that makes Europa's surface would make exploration very difficult. But I'd be willing to send a probe just to figure out how far it's going to be to get down to that wonderful liquid interior. Quincy asks meditation question. I've been meditating for about two years now, minimum 20 minutes per day. And about nine months ago, I had an experience of feeling like my mind's eye elevated about five feet above me. And I began to feel as if my arms had gotten extremely long, think Inspector Gadget, and my hands grew to a massive size, almost clown-like. I didn't know at the time that this is somewhat common, and so I kind of panicked and had a small anxiety attack. I still meditate every day, but every time I near that level slash depth, I panic and can't get past it. Any thoughts, tips, tricks to overcome this barrier? 
Uh, first of all, yeah, you're right. That's totally normal. Weird stuff happens in meditation when you do it a lot. That's kind of the point. It sounds like you might uh, be in a place in your practice where you're getting closer to having a high propensity for mystical experiences, which is what a lot of people want out of meditation. Uh, the anxiety is getting in the way. So you could try being mindful and observing the anxiety and acknowledging that it's there and accepting it and then just returning your attention to your breath and relaxing. If that doesn't work, try a different kind of meditation. Go to a different physical space. Maybe open your eyes and focus on a candle. Do something else that lets you get comfortable continuing to meditate uh, and without necessarily triggering the same anxiety. How's that sound? Jonathan asks if cloning or genetic engineering was to make it possible for people to have a third limb attached without fear of rejection. Where would be the best spot to put another arm to take full advantage of the existing nerves and muscles and to avoid destabilizing the spine? What kind of increased caloric expenditures in the body and brain might one expect? Also, I have heard that the brains of people that lose senses such as sight or a limb compensate for the loss over time. Would there be any kind of long-term stress on the brain to compensate for an added limb? Thanks, Mike. Jonathan, I don't think there's a good spot on your body to add another ball and socket joint to accommodate a third arm. Uh, your arm's not just your arm. Your arm integrates with muscles and nerves in your shoulders and your back and your chest. And we know that this is a big issue because when we build robotic prosthetic arms that attach uh, where someone's arm used to be, it causes a lot of fatigue and back pain because this arm is just strapped to the body. And even if it has similar strength to a human arm, it doesn't have the support of the surrounding tissues. So it's not a simple matter of simply attaching an arm somewhere. You would have to have a corresponding um, support tissue, support musculature for that arm. Uh, so I don't know that there's a good place to put a third arm on Homo sapiens that wouldn't have serious health consequences even if you were able to do it. Calorically, I don't know, 6 to 12% maybe? <laughs> totally spitballing just based on an off-the-top-of-my-head estimate on uh, what percentage of the total body's volume the arm is and how I think the arm might be a little hungrier in terms of calorie uh, than a, a corresponding amount of torso mass simply because of the musculature. Uh, muscles are hungry all the time. They have to be fed calories. In terms of the brain, the brain would be fine. Uh, your, primary motor your primary motor cortex deals with your movement. Uh, like all of your brain, it's highly plastic through neuroplasticity, and I'm sure you could train yourself to use your arm. Um, although if it, if it wasn't with you at birth, I assume that uh, function would be pretty limited compared to your other arms, because on your primary motor cortex, a disproportionate amount of those neurons are devoted to your lips and your hands. Um, and I don't think the brain would necessarily um, devote the same resources to a suddenly added third arm. Now, if you genetically engineered, which is far beyond our capacity uh, to do so, but if you genetically engineered so a person was born with a third arm, then the brain would probably work it out that's an amazing question. Oh, the other thing, your fear of rejection. Did you mean social rejection or tissue rejection? Because some people are going to think that third arm is strange. 
Gordon Lee asks, Hey Mike, is catch and release fishing animal abuse? I have always operated under the assumption that fish do not experience pain the same way mammals do. I find fly fishing to be a very spiritual activity, and my fellow anglers and I have the utmost respect for the fish we pursue. Are we really just torturing them, though? I have yet to find an unbiased source that addresses the science here. Thanks. Unfortunately, I don't know that I can offer you an unbiased set of studies uh, that have uh, dug into the topic of catch-and-release fishing off the top of my head. What I can tell you is I've seen that catch-and-release fishing does frequently result in significant trauma to a fish, uh, especially if the hook um, goes deep into their throat or further, or if it's really, really deep into the mouth tissues and its mouth is damaged during the removal of the hook. In terms of the capacity for fish to experience pain, they do have brains. Uh, Some fish are social and intelligent. Uh, Others are much less so, and I don't know where the dividing line is for appropriate animal suffering. There are those who would say that no animal suffering is appropriate or we should minimize it absolutely as much as possible, uh, which of course animals are going to suffer if we're going to eat. When we harvest food, uh, animals die in that process even when we're harvesting vegetables, but much less than when we are eating meat. Um, So I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't have a really thoughtful perspective. I know that I used to fish and I enjoyed catch and release fishing and I stopped uh, because uh, too often I saw the the damage to the fish was significant or indeed lethal. And um, whether they suffer or not, that seemed wasteful for me. I would still fish if I was going to eat the fish. Uh, I don't see the difference between me ordering fish that was caught commercially or me catching a fish myself. Either way, the fish dies. Uh, so I would certainly go fishing to eat, but I don't know that I personally would do catch and release fishing anymore. Brett asks, how can one fight confirmation bias without having to verify and re-verify each new piece of information? The main challenge I find is with the sheer amount of information there is to consider and digest. In science and technology, we have to build on prior results Otherwise, progress would never happen. Could you describe how published results in the sciences transition from being new and highly scrutinized to more widely accepted and built upon? Is there anything we can apply from this in terms of our own learning and critical thinking? How might an understanding of neuroscience help with this? Uh, Brett, there's a huge problem in the sciences with reproducibility of studies. And so I think in general... Uh, We have two problems. One, scientists, uh, because the systemic problems are not uh, skeptical enough about scientific findings. Uh, And on the other side, the public can be too skeptical and disregard expertise. Uh, So how is it the professionals are not skeptical enough and the public is too skeptical? Well, too skeptical would be rejecting findings about client change, which have appeared in study after study after study after study. That's too skeptical. Uh, On the other hand... um, Unless the press draws attention or the media draws attention to a particular study, scientists don't necessarily look at it close enough to find methodological flaws, and they're too busy doing their own research to worry about someone else's unless they're building upon that research. So uh, science is an attempt to mitigate human cognitive biases, including 
confirmation bias, but it is not perfect in that process. Indeed, it has significant and serious flaws. It's just better at uh, giving us reliable information about the world, especially the physical world, than any other means of knowing or inquiry that we have today. Um, science has an excellent track record of making things that work and making models that are useful. Um, in terms of our own life, uh, well, this is what part of the, the trend towards specialization is uh, this ever-swelling body of knowledge. Uh, and that's why I try to always be a bit of a generalist. Um, even if I were a specialist, I would still devote significant effort and resources into having a more generalized understanding of the sciences and what communities are finding. Um, in terms of how neuroscience can help with that, I don't know that it can directly unless you want to, you know, buy a fMRI and hire some specialists to continually monitor your brain. I think it's easier to take a pragmatic and behavioral approach to understanding the degree to which we are working with bias and to always be part of institutions and systems that hold us accountable for mistakes and errors in thinking. Uh, Robert asks, your book recommendations for learning more about uh, the human brain structure, inner workings, and evolutionary history. Gosh, that's tough. Um, Yeah, I looked at uh, different books and they confused me as much as they helped me. So I ended up buying a model brain in order to get a better idea about neuroanatomy. And I often found the books that helped me understand uh, the structure and function of the brain were books that weren't explicitly about neuroscience, but where a talented science communicator discussed the brain in the context of some other narrative. Um Ever since then, I've started to get more into neuroscience-specific books, but I don't know that they would help you with that initial uh, leg into understanding the brain. Honestly, go on Amazon and buy a 3D model of a brain, and it'll come with a little uh, card, and it'll have the parts of the brain on it, and just go through and kind of drill yourself on where those things are in three-dimensional space in the brain, and then when you see the name of a brain uh, structure, just just look it up. Use Google, use Wikipedia, and read about what that part of the brain does in the understanding of neuroscientists today. And you'll start to build a working understanding of the brain to the point now that you can start to approach uh, books about the brain and not get so lost. In terms of that, gosh, what have I enjoyed lately? Um, Phantoms in the Brain is uh, pretty great. I enjoyed The Tides of Mind. Um, I enjoyed Other Minds. I enjoyed... Uh, I can't remember the exact title. Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Um, yeah, those are fun. I don't know. <laughs> great question. Andrew asks, here's one. I know you hate conspiracy theories, but do you believe the JFK assassination had more than one gunman? And if so, what keeps you from believing other conspiracies, such as the one surrounding 9-11? 
There's a lot of good science in the magic bullet, the melting point of steel, and the buildings falling over that weren't hit with planes. World Trade Center Building 7. Believing the government is something I have a hard time with, especially since so much of what goes on seems to be fueled with money. Uh, Andrew, total honesty here. I have no idea what theories there are around the JFK assassination. I have never looked into any of them. Uh, and and similar with um, different theories about 9-11. I, I just haven't... Uh, I haven't looked into them, you know. Um, I watched those planes hit those towers. Um, I was surprised they stood at all. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know. I I don't know that I have something meaningful to contribute as a researcher to that terrible human calamity. I've honestly never been curious about the JFK assassination. I've only recently started to study history at all, American world or otherwise. Um, I've always just been kind of a little nerdy science nut. And so I haven't dug into those conspiracy theories or what merit or lack thereof uh, different theories may have. I know that in general I'm bearish on conspiracy theories, because humans are so bad at uh, keeping secrets. And um, I don't know. I think it's hard enough to keep classified information classified if you add, uh, you know, the kind of efforts that were required to assassinate a president or cause, you know, the largest loss of life uh, in the history of the United States of America. I just think it would be hard to keep those things secret. People blab. People, uh, they either get guilty or proud or something, and they have a need to share outside of their conspirators' circle. Um, I don't know. That, that's bad radio, uh, but <laughs> it's my most honest answer. Chris asks, how does evolution slash natural selection account for the major regional differences in facial features of human beings? Uh, Chris, that happens by geographic isolation of populations. People who live in different areas reproduce together more often, and so they start to drift genetically from other groups. Of course, Homo sapiens are highly mobile, so we're always sending emissaries across cultures who interbreed, and that's why there's no such thing, biologically speaking, as a human race or subspecies. Uh, Homo sapiens has always uh, made sure to keep our genetic material mixing across geographic and cultural boundaries. But in general, uh, it's simply adaptation and mutation within a population that has some degree of geographic isolation from other Homo sapiens, and that's how we get these kind of distinct traits about facial features and skin color and hair color and eye color. Um, and you'll see that uh, in, a, in a particular population over time, certain features become more prominent based on weather and climate. Uh, and that's just, that's literally how 
evolution works. That is a design feature. Uh, that's, that's the great thing about evolution. Uh, people living in equatorial areas should have very dark skin. People living in uh, high latitude areas with less sunlight should have light skin. Same with eye color. Those are environmental adaptations that have been placed in us by uh, natural selection. Um, and the same is true for uh, facial features. Now, one thing about facial features, um, selection through female preference has a lot to do with uh, what men end up looking like and vice versa. So uh, part of that is also uh, the interplay of natural selection with cultural preferences. So the more your face resembles the ideal of a culture, the more likely you are ultimately to reproduce and therefore uh, be selected for by natural selection. Qantas asks, if the Gospels weren't written by the apostles and they were written decades later, why should Christians trust the red letters and miracles written in the Bible? Fantastic question. Depends on what you mean by trust. Are these uh, accounts that you could use in a court of law? Probably not. Are these accounts that you could use to make historical claims? Well, to some degree, this is how ancient literature, including historical literature, was written. Uh, it's, I think it's always a mistake to take a, a modern perspective and project that back onto an ancient collection like the Bible. So why do the Gospels have value? They tell us what some of the earliest followers of Jesus and some of the earliest Christians thought about his teachings and about his life. And as long as we place those within a cultural context, as long as we inform ourselves about history, these are, in fact, some of the closest um, records we can get to the life and teaching of Christ, of Jesus, if that matters to you. So why does it matter? Uh, well, like all scripture, it was assembled by the church as a way for us to know and understand God. If that's important to you, then uh, the largest, the absolute largest community of people in the world today trying to follow that which we call God are Christians. And if that's part of your cultural heritage, um, there's a lot of great thinking and scholarship and practice in there about how to be closer to God. Uh, I love the Gospels, even though they weren't written in all likelihood by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But as I study the Gospels, I also study scholarship about the Gospels so that I best understand the author and the author's intent and agenda for the author's audience. I also know that uh, other books, for example, James, some scholars think that James might be the earliest uh, or closest to Jesus account we have because it was written by the brother of Jesus, James, and uh, or, or written by a scribe or or follower of James in a, a closer proximity to the life and teachings of Christ. So that makes James one of my favorite books of the Bible because I'm such a Jesus nut. And um, I would say check 
Check the assumptions you're bringing to the Bible and why those assumptions are more important to you than the Bible itself. I think the fact that the Bible is human-written and human-assembled by the church makes it more valuable and not less. The value of the Gospels, like the entirety of our Bible, is their ability to say, me too, to see that for thousands of years, other people have been struggling with these questions as well, including one central to our faith. Who was Jesus and why does it matter today? Eric asks, at what point do you see human augmentation surpassing what humans should control? Biomimicry is important for developing prosthesis and helping humans regain abilities they lost due to amputation or diseases. But what do you see as downsides to normal humans augmenting themselves to improve their abilities? Um, I see a problem if our physical function is attached to consumerism and capitalism. (laughs) We are already stripping the world of natural resources really quickly and building uh, systems that cause dramatically uh, or dramatic wealth disparity, and it's troubling. What if poverty is not only the inability to feed yourself, but the inability to compete in order to get work because you can't afford to augment yourself? That's a big problem. Uh, So my problems with augmentation tend to be more sociological and economical than biological. I don't think it like dooms the species. Um, you know, I, if you're if you're hacking parts of your body off, I think you want to be very cautious. Just because an artificial foot may run faster doesn't necessarily mean that you should cut yours off. Um But I think it's coming. I think augmentation is coming regardless of our stance on it. So it's better to start considering the implications as you've done with your question than to simply be afraid uh, or to pretend it's not happening or to try to fight it in all cases. Uh, And no matter what we do, there's going to be unforeseen consequences because, hey, that's humanity. Jordan asks, I have been practicing meditation for a while. I find myself constantly analyzing my experiences and am not able to fully enter into them. Would you have any hacks that would help circumvent the observer part of the brain? Well, Jordan, the observer part of the brain is a huge part of meditation. Um, that, that is mindfulness. Sounds like you're really good at mindfulness meditation. You're great at observing and being aware. If you're saying, how can you be more embodied? Try something different. Go for yoga. Uh, go for a dance party. <laughs> Do things that are in the body, in the movement, that that you don't observe, that you actually viscerally experience. My wife is much better at visceral experience and uh, than I am. And, you know, I'm much more comfortable in the cerebral and in in this observer you talk about. Um, So try different kinds of meditations. Meditation that involve the body, that involve body movement, and that involve body awareness. And uh, you'll train your brain to not just watch all the time, but also to participate. Kimberly asks, so here it goes. 
I've been struggling with this question for the last three and a half years since my husband committed suicide after I filed for divorce against him. We had been married for 23 years, 17 good years, and the last five years of marriage became unbearable as he became emotionally abusive to me and my teenage son and daughter and addicted to gambling and shopping online. He spent his career in social services, child protective services specifically, protecting kids from abusive caregivers until he became physically disabled, probably a result of PTSD. His behavior toward us changed as his physical disability developed. After his death, a trusted friend told me that he thought my husband always had a bad core and that in the last five years he reverted to his true self, but that didn't mean he couldn't do good things. I am not sure even how to ask this question, but do you think my friend was right? If I agree with him, there are some realities that I need to deal with. If I disagree with him, there are other realities I have to face. Either way, it's difficult, but I do find it troublesome to think that I was married to someone for such a long time who had a bad core. One of the problems with suicide is that there are always so many unanswered questions, and I can never be 100% certain that I have interpreted our experiences correctly. Kimberly, first, uh, I am so sorry for your loss and for the pain and the trauma that you and your children experienced as your marriage fell apart, as your former husband's life deteriorated, and now the guilt and pain that you deal with in the aftermath of suicide. I am so sorry for what you're experiencing. And there's nothing I can say that will make that better. So I just want to start by acknowledging that. All I can do is sit here as a stranger across the internet who is compelled by your question and your experience. And I want you to know that as you hear these words, that my mind is on you now. And I will think about you throughout this day and throughout this week and you and your family. Do people have bad cores? What does that mean? What does that mean? Do we all have different uh, nurture and nature-based predispositions towards some feelings? Yes. Some people are more prone to be sanguine. Others more prone to be depressed genetically. And this was reinforced environmentally or not. Does a person who is prone to depression, have a bad core. Well, of course they don't. Of course they don't. I'm a naturally sanguine person. Does that mean I have a good core? That I'm naturally a better person than someone who is depressed? Of course not. So I hear a little in your question through things like PTSD and addiction issues that maybe your husband had some genetic factors that led to destructive behavior and maybe childhood experiences or adult experiences led him to have a struggle with these problems and 
and he held it together for 17 years. And some of that may have been a result of your relationship. I don't know. I don't know you. And I didn't know your former husband. What I do know is those 17 years were good years by your own description. So whether your husband struggled with something on the inside or not, we all do. We all do. We all struggle with things. I've devoted my life to being available to you all. (laughs) Uh, Strangers on the internet that I, I go across the country and meet in person, and I love it. And I think I'm a pretty good person. But sometimes I'm a grouch with my wife and my children. I, I want to get my work done. If they interrupt me, I, I can be hard to deal with, especially since I hit my head. So now that I've had a brain injury, do I have a bad core because I'm more irritable? No. No. I just get irritable sometimes. And if I care about the people in my life, I should work on that. Um, I understand what it means to want to end your life. I have stood on a step stool with a noose around my neck. I've held a shotgun in my mouth and I've pulled the trigger with my toe. I know what it's like to want this life to be over. And that doesn't mean that I have a bad core. It means that we all have scars and wounds, and things that make us limp. And we either, through our actions and social support, are able to cope, or we are not. Your husband's actions hurt you. The divorce hurt you. His suicide certainly hurt you. But it means he was not able to struggle anymore. And that's not your fault. but it means you had 17 years that were good that you can be grateful for. It means you have two children that are good who you can be grateful for. So grieve and lament the loss that you've experienced and the pain and the trauma that came from that separation, divorce, and suicide. But as you cope with that hurt. Be comforted by 17 good years with a person who loved you. Okay, friends, that's part two. We'll be back tomorrow, uh, probably late in the day, frankly, with part three. See you soon.